This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Frears, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, the Sokolov family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. So here's the thing. In the 1950s, the music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences made rules to ensure that the songs written for the movies and under consideration for a nomination are not what are known as trunk songs, meaning they were written many years ago, stuffed in a trunk, with little to no intention of being recorded, then resurrected for a movie and earning an Academy Award nomination. In some cases, those songs were winning Academy Awards. Over the years, during the 1960s and early 1970s, songwriters found ways to skirt around this issue, claiming that the song had been rewritten in some way to make it completely new for the movie. But when songs that had been written years earlier before their film debut started winning Academy Awards, such as 1975's I'm Easy, the music branch created stricter rules for the 1976 songs that tried to force composers and lyricists to fashion songs specifically for the films on which they're hired. The first sentence under the list of criteria for a song to qualify for Oscar consideration in 1976 says, quote, the work must be specifically created for the eligible film, end quote. That clause had not been in any of the rules in previous years and potentially eliminates any of those trunk songs I mentioned earlier. But here's a spoiler alert. There will be a few songs that earn nominations in coming years that were not written for a movie, but managed to skirt the rules again and earn a nomination. As for the songs nominated for 1976, all of them appear to have met this criteria. Another major addition to the rules for 1976 states that the song just can't be written for the film. Quote, Its contribution must be of sufficient import that its absence would clearly and substantially lessen the dramatic or theatrical thrust of the film as a whole. A factor in determining this effectiveness and importance shall be the relevance to the film of a work's duration, style, and texture. End quote. That's a tall order to fill, but it definitely would give some strong guidance to the songwriters. The final decision on whether the song fulfills this and other requirements falls with the music branch's executive committee, though a request to review a song's eligibility based on the artistic merits will be reviewed by the music branch as a whole. A song that is deemed to be a trunk song, for example, will be reviewed by the executive committee of the music branch made of about 10 members. As has been the case for nearly 20 years, the music branch whittled down the list of eligible songs down to 10 for a preliminary ballot. Then the entire music branch selected the best five of the year. And what a list of five it is for 1976. Some of the songs that didn't make it past the preliminary vote would have been worthy Oscar nominees as well. Let's go in alphabetical order, and before we start, a reminder that crucial plot details of many movies are going to be revealed in this episode. The first song we'll hear 
is the second song in Oscar history to be nominated for a horror film. Like the nominated song Ben from the 1972 horror movie about a murderous rat, the song that was nominated in 1976 comes from a film with a young boy at the center of the plot. This movie is The Omen, the first in a trilogy of films about the coming of the Antichrist into the world. The 1976 movie starred Gregory Peck and Lee Remick as the parents of a young boy who turns out to be the son of the devil. In order to fulfill the prophecy, many people have to die, though not directly at the hands of the little boy, Damien. Richard Donner directed the movie, and the score was composed by the multiple Oscar-nominated Jerry Goldsmith. In thinking of the proper music for The Omen, Goldsmith has said that after watching an early cut of the film, quote, I began hearing voices, end quote. That translated into using a chorus throughout the film to perform pieces in Latin, using Gregorian chants as a jumping-off point, and then going in the opposite direction. Instead of Ave Maria, Goldsmith's score constantly repeats Ave Satani, or Hail Satan. At the beginning of the film, during the opening credits, we hear a short version of the nominated song Ave Satani as a Latin chant. Though it has been noted by several Latin scholars that not all of the words we hear are real Latin words, the essence of the meaning is there. The chorus sings in English, We drink blood, we eat flesh, raise the body of Satan. This is the first nominated song to use a dead language as its lyrics, and the use of organ, percussion, and low brass highlights the dread of the piece, while the chorus worships the coming of the Antichrist. Richard Donner, the director, wanted the ending to be a little less obvious that Damien was the Antichrist, but screenwriter David Selter fought hard to keep his original ending that would set up for the eventual trilogy that followed Damien through his teenage and adult years. Jerry Goldsmith helped Seltzer's cause with the full version of Ave Satani at the end of the movie, when Damien turns to the camera and smiles after both of his adoptive parents have died. In the bridge of the song, the words Ave versus Christus translate to Hail the Antichrist. Just 13 words in the entire song, many repeat it. Oh, mm-hmm. 
Moving on to the second nominated song, and it comes from the fifth film in the Pink Panther series. Most purists will say it's the fourth film because the 1965 film Inspector Clouseau did not involve writer-director Blake Edwards nor star Peter Sellers. Either way, the bumbling Clouseau is back in a plot involving his former boss plotting to kill him in various comedic ways. Long story short, Clouseau survives and the villain dies via Vanishing Ray. In the course of the film, a female Russian spy has been sent to kill Clouseau, but she refuses her orders when she is seduced by a man she thinks is Clouseau. In fact, it's Omar Sharif in a cameo as another assassin. After making love to the Russian woman named Olga, Sharif leaves, never to be seen again. But Olga was so swept up in the moment that she wants to be with Clouseau forever. At the end of the movie, she shows up at Clouseau's place to seduce him again, this time transforming his bedroom into a love pad, complete with romantic lighting and the nominated song, Come to Me. On the surface, the song is very sincere, not going for comedy at all. But on screen, it's nothing but laughs. Clouseau is having a hard time undressing, and the sounds of laughter in the movie theater during this scene likely drowned out the song. Come and hold me tight I must have you Come closer Love me now And I'll give all I've got to give Make it soon So that I can live And love and dream for two I'm here and I'll stay here For at least forevermore Oh darling, can't you see I want you loving me I need you come to me And we'll walk in the sun each day Summer will be a kiss away Just wait and see Oh, what a moment that will be when you come to me Once Clouseau gets in the bed, he slips under the covers with Olga, who wants him to sing. 
darling, sing to me. Sing to you? Where did you go? Your voice. Yes, that was my voice. That was my voice singing a, a little song we used to sing in the Resistance to keep up the courage. Tom Jones is the credited singer for Come To Me, the second Oscar-nominated song he originated. In 1965, he sang What's New Pussycat to catapult him into superstardom outside of the United Kingdom, a status he continued to enjoy with this song. The composer of the film score, Henry Mancini, was looking to reach those heights again, a status he hadn't enjoyed since the days of Moon River in the early 1960s. Mancini kept busy throughout the 1970s, mostly working with Blake Edwards, but wrote music for other movies as well. Come to Me was Mancini's first Oscar nomination in five years, and it was lyricist Don Black's third nomination in four years, all earned by working with different composers. The next nominated song is the fourth one originated on film by Barbara Streisand, and it's a passion project for her and her boyfriend at the time, producer John Peters. The movie is the second remake of A Star is Born, following the 1954 version starring Judy Garland in her big comeback attempt. Frank Pearson, who won an Oscar for writing the screenplay for 1975's Dog Day Afternoon, co-wrote this script and directed it as well. In her quest to show her devotion to the role of rising singer Esther Hoffman, Streisand took extensive guitar lessons before filming began. It was during one of those lessons that the melody for Evergreen came from her fingers. Streisand filmed a scene for A Star is Born where she plays the guitar while humming the song's melody. Chris Christopherson, playing the superstar singer whose career is on the skids, sits and listens in awe as we hear the song essentially coming to life from Esther's fingers and voice. Thank you. 
This scene was not part of the original theatrical release, but it was restored many years later for cable airings and DVD releases, again giving us one of those rare opportunities to see an early stage of songwriting. One of the failings of A Star is Born is the stretch of 40 minutes without a song performance, either by Christofferson or Streisand. But we're rewarded for our patience when John gives Esther time in the studio to record her songs, even though his manager is very much against it. After asking John to take away the rock and roll band in favor of a more classical feel, Esther is ready to perform Evergreen, the song she was creating earlier in the movie, and the song that got the Oscar nomination from A Star is Born. We see the song performed in one uninterrupted take, with John joining her for part of the song. The real exciting part of the scene is watching Streisand and Christofferson sing live and what I'm assuming is a rehearsal take in the plot of the movie. It's not a clean and polished performance, but most singers would love to be able to sing a rehearsal take this well. Fresh as the morning air One love that is shared by two I found with you Like a rose under the
John and Esther get married, and the melody from Evergreen becomes their love theme as they spend some time in the middle of nowhere enjoying married life. Real life intervenes, and what follows is a montage of Esther performing, doing interviews, and posing for photographs. Many of Esther's songs play on the soundtrack, including the final polished version of Evergreen. It only plays for about 13 seconds there, but we get the full version during the end credits. This is the version that became the official recording of Evergreen, the one that gave Streisand her second number one Billboard hit, about three years after The Way We Were. Evergreen took its time crawling up the Billboard charts, just like The Way We Were, and finally hit number one on March 5, 1977. That was three weeks after the Oscar nominations were announced, 
and one week before the final ballots were sent out. The album For a Star is Born was also a big hit, going to number one at the same time and eventually selling about 8 million copies worldwide. At the time, it was the best-selling soundtrack album of all time, a record that would last less than a year. The lyrics for Evergreen were written by Paul Williams, who was quickly becoming part of the new generation of movie songwriters. In just three years, he had earned three Academy Award nominations for writing songs, and though he had been writing music for about a decade, he had to wait until 1977 to get his first number one song. Most interviews about A Star is Born indicate that there was never an intent for Streisand to write a song for A Star is Born. She had hired Williams and Kenny Asher to handle the original songs. But when this melody was born, Streisand asked Williams to help create a lyric for it. Williams has said that the line, Morning Glory and Midnight Sun, was his favorite part of the lyric, equating it to Johnny Mercer's Huckleberry Friend from Moon River as the quintessential lyric. Two other songs from A Star is Born made it past the preliminary ballot, the first time three songs from one movie got into the top ten. I wouldn't really call it a surprise given that Barbara Streisand is the one singing them, and this is the first time she's performed so many original songs in one movie. Besides Evergreen, the other songs are I Believe in Love and With One More Look at You. I Believe in Love is one of the songs Streisand's Esther performs at her first concert, and though it's a big hit for Esther, Seeing Streisand performing a rock song might have been a little too jarring for voters who are used to much smoother, classically tinted songs from her. comes at the end of the movie as part of the first concert that Esther gives after Chris Christopherson's character dies. It reminds me of the performance of My Man at the end of Funny Girl, also shot in close-up with a tear running down Streisand's face. With one more look at you 
Evergreen was the only certified hit from A Star is Born, but having one of the other songs from the movie make it onto the final nomination list would have given Kenny Asher the nomination he was denied because he didn't write Evergreen. Another movie that became a big box office success starred someone who was not as famous as Barbara Streisand, but would become a megastar once his film hit theaters. Sylvester Stallone fought and scratched and begged to get his screenplay filmed about a Philadelphia boxer, and his stipulation that he play the lead role made studios nervous. But producers Erwin Winkler and Robert Chartoff saw potential in Stallone and agreed to finance the production. The movie, of course, is Rocky, and it's become one of the greatest sports movies of all time. And the training montage, which features Rocky getting ready for the big title fight with Apollo Creed, is one of the best scenes in all of movies, helped in large part by the Oscar-nominated song, Gonna Fly Now. Bill Conti wrote the score for Rocky, and it became his biggest success at that point in a career that started as a ghostwriter for Ennio Morricone's score for the Sergio Leone westerns in the early 1970s. David Shire, the husband of Rocky star Talia Shire, was originally hired to write the score to Rocky, but had to turn it down due to scheduling conflicts. Conti came in with a small orchestra of 45 musicians and recorded all the music in one recording session. 
Conti's opening music for Rocky, played mostly with blasting trumpets as the word Rocky scrolls across the screen in very large letters, became the jumping-off point for the melody for Gonna Fly Now. That music was augmented with the electric guitar sound of the 1970s for the song that comes 90 minutes later. At first, the montage which shows Rocky punching frozen meat, running through Philadelphia, and finally reaching the top of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, was just going to feature Conti's music. But Conti began to see the potential in a song as director John Alvaldson kept extending the length of the montage from the original 90 seconds to 3 minutes. Songwriting duo Carol Connors and Ann Robbins, who had been hired to write a song that was going to play on the radio, stepped in to help, and their contribution comes out to just 30 words. It fits what we see on the screen. As Rocky runs along the riverbank, his running speed getting faster and faster, a chorus sings, Getting strong now won't be long now, over Conti's blaring trumpets. And once he reaches the top of the steps in that famous Steadicam shot of his early morning celebration, the words, gonna fly now, make a strong impact.
Conti did an interview in 2016 with the BBC, giving an oral history of his work on Rocky, and he said that not only was the entire music budget about $25,000, but that the people who sang the vocals on Gonna Fly Now were not professional singers. Conti said this to the BBC, My wife was working as a secretary at a radio station here in L.A. called KHJ. I asked her, Do any boys or girls in your office sing? Because I got a song here with a few lyrics. Not very much. I'm getting strong now. Silly lyrics. She said, I'll ask. So she came over on her lunch break with her office mates, and they sang the track to Gonna Fly Now. Did they get paid? Absolutely nothing. They grabbed a sandwich and went back to work. End quote. Those office mates who performed Gonna Fly Now were Dietta Little and Nelson Pickford. Neither of them used the success of Gonna Fly Now to start a music career, returning to relative obscurity as employees of KHJ Radio while the song became a big hit through late 1976 and early 1977. The song was a huge hit when it was released commercially, hitting number one on the Billboard Hot 100. This gives us two number one songs in one nominated list, the first time that's happened since the beginning of the modern Billboard chart in 1958. And it's a big turnaround after not having any songs in the top 40 for 1974. And with the nomination for Gonna Fly Now, 1976 also marks the first year that three women are nominated for Best Original Song in the same year. Carol Connors and Ann Robbins met on a double date with the men they were seeing at the time and bonded over their desire to write songs. Connors was known as Annette Kleinbard when she was with the Teddy Bears in 1950s and had a big hit with To Know Him Is To Love Him. After the band broke up, she changed her name and became a songwriter. Robbins had been working as a secretary for actors George Kennedy and Ava Gabor, longing to be a poet. She was finally able to put her gift of words to use with lyric writing. The fifth nominated song comes from the film Half a House. Nearly every synopsis of the movie calls it a comedy, but there are very few laughs in the movie and it's not very uplifting. That's not to say there can't be comedy in a story about married architects who decide to separate but still live in the house they designed together, but I didn't find any, and apparently neither did the filmmakers after they saw the finished version. Producer Linky Romanski figured the movie wasn't going to turn a profit, and initially thought the best thing to do was to put it in a vault without giving the public the chance to see it. But the film contains a song written by two Oscar winners called A World That Never Was, and Romanski bet that the tune could earn an Oscar nomination. To make the film and the song eligible for Oscar consideration, the movie was released for the minimum one week in Beverly Hills, California on December 17, 1976. The bet paid off, but not without some extra help from songwriter Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster. The creators of the Oscar-winning songs Secret Love and Love is a Many Splendored Thing took out full-page ads in the trade publication Variety and created a special telephone line for music branch members to hear the song in case they didn't see the movie during its one-week release. During the Oscar nomination period in January and February 1977, their hotline was the only place to hear the song. The film's budget didn't allow for a commercial record release, 
which the songwriters openly admitted in their Variety ad as the reason for the innovative way to advertise their song. Quote, It would also be nice if we were in a widely seen motion picture, but we don't have that either, the songwriters wrote in the ad. The nominated song first appears during a fight between the film's main characters, Jordan and Bitsy, that sets off the desire to go through divorce proceedings. To get away from his wife, Jordan takes a shower and sings part of A World That Never Was while Bitsy throws his clothes out the window. Jordan and Bitsy start to work toward reconciliation after about an hour of unfunny episodes and uninspired dialogue. Bitsy finds a jar of photographs in the living room, and it prompts a flashback accompanied by the full version of A World That Never Was as a voiceover. We see Bitsy and Jordan in a happier time, riding bicycles on the beach and genuinely in love with each other. The song fits the flashback, reminiscing about a forgotten time that seemed too good to be true. Come 
Susie Brabo was a stage actress when she was hired to sing A World That Never Was for the film. It would be the only contribution she made to motion pictures, according to the Internet Movie Database. Her life before working on Half a House and her professional life in the years that followed are hard to find. Now You remember Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster. They had a previous working relationship with producer Lynn K. Romansky, who had produced the 1972 movie The Stepmother. That featured the Oscar-nominated Fane and Webster song Strange Are the Ways of Love. At 74 and 68 years old respectively, Fane and Webster extended their record as the oldest Oscar nominees in the history of the original song category with A World That Never Was. Fane becomes the only songwriter to earn a nomination in his 70s, and if he wins, would be the oldest Oscar winner outside of the acting categories. Besides his work on A Star is Born, Paul Williams' name was attached to another musical in 1976. The other one was called Bugsy Malone, a gangster story that used the lives of real-life mobsters Al Capone and Bugs Moran as inspiration. Another inspiring aspect of the film was using child actors to play these roles, and every time one of the characters shoots a gun, whipped cream sprays out instead of bullets. Directed by British TV director Alan Parker in his feature film debut, and the first of many musicals he would direct, Parker had the good fortune of working with one of the hottest child actors of the time, Jodie Foster. Jodie was doing this musical as well as playing a prostitute and taxi driver the same year, earning an Oscar nomination for Taxi Driver. Paul Williams' songs in Bugsy Malone sort of veered away from what was making him popular at the time. Instead of writing songs with a heavy rock and roll flavor, Bugsy Malone's songs are rooted in the 1930s, when the film was set. It had to be tough for Williams to toss out the electric guitar for swing-era musical arrangements, but that's what any good songwriter can do. Williams received an Oscar nomination in the original song score category for Bugsy Malone, and years later admitted that the reason why none of the songs got individual nominations was because of the choice to have adults sing the songs that would be lip-synced by children. Perhaps I should have given the kids a chance to sing the songs, he said in an interview. The song Williams said he was most happy to write for the movie was Ordinary Fool, which Ella Fitzgerald and Mel Torme recorded a few years later. It's a love song about regret, and it could have given Paul Williams the opportunity to compete against his big hit, Evergreen.
Another musical from 1976 that was not well received was Sparkle, a somewhat veiled story of the Supremes that predates the Broadway show Dreamgirls by four years. Irene Cara, at just 15 years old, played the lead character, Sparkle, who manages to become a solo singing sensation. Curtis Mayfield, the many times passed over songwriter of movies in the 1970s to feature all-black casts, wrote five songs for Sparkle. Four of them were performed on stage by the girl group Sister and the Sisters, while one of them, called Look Into Your Heart, was sung by Kara and the future Rico Tubbs and Miami Vice, Philip Michael Thomas. He plays Sparkle's former lover, and the two sing this together after Sparkle has trouble singing it in the studio. So Philip Michael Thomas, who has an amazing voice, shows her how it should be done. Eventually, It becomes more than a song to be performed for an album. It's a love song that these two can finally sing together. Everybody's got a story About the love and the good things But for the spices of your life You've got to pay the price If you know what I mean And I'm telling everybody out loud That this woman makes me feel so very proud I wanna give me to you, baby. Yeah. So if you look into your heart with a positive mind, with a positive mind, take self inventory, you woman and your glory. Put it The fact that Look Into Your Heart weaves its way into the plot instead of just being a song performed on stage should have made it ripe for Oscar consideration, but it didn't get into the preliminary top 10. Two other songs for the movie became big hits in the 1990s for a real-life female group called In Vogue. Something He Can Feel and Hooked on Your Love were on the group's second album, Funky Divas. 
In addition to Evergreen and Gonna Fly Now, another movie song that was a number one hit was the title song from the comedy Car Wash. This movie came at the end of the black exploitation era, as black audiences grew tired of the stereotypical movie plots that failed to put African Americans in a good light. Car Wash didn't do much to help that, but it had a popular song that drew audiences of all backgrounds into the theaters and helped the film make nearly $10 million in its initial theatrical release. Norman Whitfield wrote the title song, which plays in a montage of people cleaning cars, a man smoking marijuana in the bathroom, and the attendant checking her makeup. In the world of this movie, the song is a big hit, and everyone likes dancing to it. spent one week at number one on January 29, 1977. As it was on its way down the Billboard chart, Evergreen was on its way up. Whitfield's work on Car Wash was rewarded on February 19, 1977 with a Grammy for Best Score Soundtrack Album. In addition to Car Wash, Whitfield also wrote the songs I Want to Get Next to You and I'm Going Down. All three songs were sung by Rose Royce, the band that Whitfield put together when he left the Motown record label to start his own in 1975. Whitfield's label, called Whitfield Records, didn't do very well despite the success of Car Wash and its soundtrack album. He returned to Motown and worked as a producer in the 1980s. The song Car Wash would be his only number one hit, and he stopped writing songs two years later. But before his songwriting career ended, 
Whitfield also earned a Golden Globe nomination for Car Wash, alongside Evergreen and the title song from Bugsy Malone, instead of Ordinary Fool. Another Golden Globe nomination went to the song I'd Like to Be You for a Day from Freaky Friday, the third movie featuring Jodie Foster in 1976. The movie involves a spell that switches the bodies of a woman and her daughter, and the song sets up the premise during the opening credits. Jodie Foster didn't get to sing in Bugsy Malone, but this is her actually singing here with Barbara Harris, who plays her mother. I'd like to be you for a day. 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 I'd like to climb into the dreams you hide. To know the grown-up and the child inside. Whatever makes you smile. I'd like to see it go ahead and free. Would start revealing all the things you're feeling. Two-time Oscar winners Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn, who became famous for writing love songs for Irwin Allen disaster movies, wrote I'd Like to Be You for a Day for this Disney movie. They were hired to do it because they were already on the Disney payroll working on the song score for a yet-to-be-released live-action animation hybrid musical about a boy and his dragon friend. I'd Like to Be You for a Day didn't get an Oscar nomination, but it was deemed good enough to make it past the preliminary round. As expected, Evergreen received the Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song. It was a great year for Streisand, who also won the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Musical. Streisand didn't have to worry about being twice nominated at the Academy Awards. Her acting wasn't singled out, and no one seemed to mind. But the big question was going to be whether Streisand would attend the awards show and would she sing Evergreen on the telecast. She had originated three Oscar-nominated songs previously and never came to the Oscars to sing them. So many were certain she would say no. But remember, she did write this one and would probably want to be in the audience in case she won. Oscar-winning director William Friedkin was in charge of the 1977 Academy Awards telecast, and he really wanted Streisand to show up. Among the nominated songs, hers had the biggest star power. Tom Jones had already agreed to sing Come to Me, 
but Tom Jones's name alone wasn't going to attract attention. Ave Satani and Gone to Fly Now were originally sung by non-celebrity choruses, and A World That Never Was was originally performed by an unknown stage actress. So Streisand had to come. Though she was planning to be in Europe to promote A Star is Born on the day of the Academy Awards, Streisand decided to put the tour on hold and perform for the first time at an Academy Awards ceremony. And, of course, to be there in case the song was named as an Oscar winner. The news filled the entertainment pages of newspapers around the world, and Streisand was also convinced to appear at the Grammy Awards ceremony that February, even though none of the music from A Star is Born was eligible to compete due to being released after that award show's submission deadline. Certainly, the fact that Evergreen was a huge favorite to win the Oscar convinced her that she needed to be in Hollywood in spring 1977. So, the stage was set for a great evening of song performances at the 49th Academy Awards on March 28, 1977. Besides Streisand's performance, the one that probably had those in the know anxious to see was Ave Satani. Yes, the Academy Awards telecast did feature the song, performed by Tony Vivante, a man who seemed to have been created out of thin air, especially for this performance, and then vanished without a trace. The internet has no record of who he was before the Academy Awards performance, listing only the 1977 Oscars as his only contribution to the movie industry. All the other singers that night had some degree of notoriety. Eddie Albert was a two-time Oscar nominee and sang A World That Never Was. Ben Vereen had won a Tony in 1973 for Pippin and was an interesting choice for Gonna Fly Now. Evergreen was the last song performed on the show. Streisand appeared on an empty stage with the lighting focused only on her. The camera shots rarely went beyond the typical close-up and the audience seemed to be very enthusiastic about Streisand singing live. If there was any doubt about which song was going to win, the choice of presenter for the original song award made it plainly obvious. Neil Diamond was one of Streisand's high school classmates growing up in Brooklyn, and when he walked out, I would imagine the eight nominated songwriters competing with Evergreen groaned a little bit. Even as Diamond read the list of song nominees, Evergreen was the only one that received any applause. When Diamond named Streisand and Williams as the winning songwriters, Streisand appeared from the wings in a different outfit from the one she wore during the song performance. Her acceptance speech wasn't as iconic as the one she gave after winning the Oscar for Funny Girl, but the five-foot, two-inch-tall Paul Williams made up for that. I was, uh, I was going to thank all the little people and... <laughs> Then I remembered I am the little people. <laughs> Streisand made a couple of bits of history with this Oscar win. Though she was the third woman to win the Best Song Oscar, she was the first one to do so in a composer role. And it was the first time the winner of an acting Oscar would also win an Oscar in any other category. Streisand had been known as a trailblazer for many singer-actresses of a generation, and she would continue to do so in this moment. Many movies that have been nominated for the Best Picture Academy Award have featured a song that was also nominated for the Oscar. But when Rocky won Best Picture, 
it became just the third Best Picture winner to feature a nominated song. Up to this point, only Going My Way in 1944 and Gigi in 1959 had earned that distinction. But those two each had an Oscar-winning song, whereas Rocky did not. As we go through this podcast, we'll see if another film can join them as a Best Picture and Best Original Song winner, or at least Original Song nominee. The rest of the Oscar show that year was about honoring Peter Finch for his lead role in Network, the first time an acting award was awarded posthumously. Finch died on January 14, 1977, the morning after appearing on The Tonight Show to talk about his performance in Network, and just hours before he was to do another interview with the movie's director, Sidney Lumet. Finch wasn't the only nominee who had died shortly before the Oscar show. Composer Bernard Herrmann died on December 23, 1975, the day after he finished recording the score to Taxi Driver, one of the two film scores that earned him a posthumous nomination. That score and his score for Obsession lost to Jerry Goldsmith's work on The Omen. Though they would live for many years after the 1977 ceremony, Paul Francis Webster, Jerry Goldsmith, Don Black, and Bill Conti would not be nominated in the original song category again. Goldsmith and Conti would return to the Oscars as composers for original scores, with Conti winning for 1983's The Right Stuff. Conti served as musical director of the 1977 show, a role he would take on a record 18 more times, though not in the year when he won his Oscar. As I mentioned before, Paul Francis Webster became the second oldest person to be nominated for the original song Oscar, and he'll hold on to that distinction for many, many years, even after his death in 1984. As for Don Black, he turned his talents to the stage, writing lyrics for a few lesser-known musicals with composer Andrew Lloyd Webber in the late 1980s. Co-losers Sammy Fain, Carol Connors, and Ann Robbins commiserated together as they finished up work on a project that would bring them back to the Academy Awards the following year. Their competition will include two first-time nominees and five previous winners of the award. I think 1977 is going to be an interesting year for movie songs, with a lot of stories to tell. I can't wait to share them with you. All right, everyone, that's going to do it for this episode of the Best Song Podcast. Before we say goodbye, I want to give a big thank you to Carrie Moore for sponsoring this episode. Thanks to all of you for singing along with me today, and we'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.